So uh, when I was about six years old, I lived on this old Victorian terrace of houses. And at the top of the street was a corner store. Um, think of it like 7-Eleven from 100 years ago, basically. So you, you, you went there, my parents would take me to they would, my little brother and myself, and we'd go up and we'd buy you know, milk and groceries, those sorts of things. Um, but at the back of the store was the really good part, because at the back of the store was, not what you're thinking, but the back of the store was, was the candy section. You've all got dirty minds. It was the candy section, or the sweet section. And there was a thing called pick and mix, and I don't know if you have it here, but basically you would get a little paper bag, and you would choose what sweets that you put into the bag, and then you would weigh the bag, and whatever the bag weighed, you would then, you would then pay for that. The problem was is that my parents were kind of strict and they were never into sweets or candy. And so every week or whatever number of days we would go up there, I would always feel the same sort of pangs of like, like feeling left out and sad that I wasn't allowed candy. And so one day when, when I got to a point of complete desperation, I snuck into the back of the store and grabbed a sweet from a candy from one of the, the containers and shoved it in my pocket and walked out with my parents. Like I can remember to this day the feelings of guilt as I walked down the hill back to my house. So much so that by the time I'd made it to my front door, like I just couldn't help it. Like as a six or seven year old kid, I just burst out like, ah, I've, I've stolen this sweet. It's so terrible. I'm really sorry. Um, and my mum my being really strict, you know, probably gave me a clip around the ear and marched me straight back to the store where I had to present what I'd done in front of the shop assistant who probably thought the whole thing was very strange. The truth is, over the last 35 years, there have been many other instances which are far more serious than stealing a one-cent candy from a store. Those feelings when we say things or we don't say things, when we do things or we fail to do things, which leave us with guilt, which leave us with those feelings of regret and failure. And of course, if left unchecked, those feelings can grow and grow to leave us feeling shame. We feel that we're worthless. We feel that we're broken. We feel like we have nothing to offer. We have no value. I don't know if you can relate in any way to that. Maybe even this morning, as Jorge and, and the guys were leading us, there was just this, this, this memories of the brokenness, memories of the stuff that you carry into the church when you come, those things which weigh you down, stress you out, plague you in, in the middle of the night. Well, the good news is this morning we're going to talk about Jesus, a God who forgives and offers beauty and new beginnings. So we're in this journey through the book of Luke. We've been going at it for some time now. And this morning, we pick up an incredible encounter between Jesus and some other uh, people over a meal. And we're going to see uh, what that looks like. And we're also going to read this parable that Jesus tells on the back end of it to explain what's going on in the physical space. And I just want to say, if you're new this morning and you're like, I've never read the book of Luke, I've never even really got into the Bible, I don't really know what it's all about, then I just want to say, like, welcome the good news of the, the words of Jesus is you don't, you don't need mass loads of information to hear from hear his voice. You don't have to have the language or have, having read the whole Bible or been in church for 35 years to have got all of it figured out. Jesus' words, they always meet us wherever we are. They always meet us in the exact place that we find ourselves. All you really need to know this morning is that Jesus loves you, that he's for you, and he wants to meet you in the exact place you find yourself in this morning. So we're going to read Luke chapter 7, 36 to 50. 
Luke 7, 36 to 50. If you've got your Bibles, that'd be great. Um, If not, it'll be up on the screens, and then we're going to walk through it. So let's uh, have our reading right now from Anna. Good morning. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisees' houses and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet and with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50 Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, thanks, Anna. So, so far through the book of Luke, we've seen these two really interesting themes. The first theme, which seems to crop up every single week, whether we like it or not, is the theme of Jesus spending time with the outcasts, with the broken, with those who are the sinners and at the edge of society. But the other major theme, which seems to crop up all the time, is the theme of food and hospitality. In the book of Luke alone, there are 50 different references to hospitality and great meals being eaten together. Uh, One of uh, our ex-pastors, Laura, and I used to say all the time, Jesus must have been a fat man. Like He just must have been. It would be be nutritionally impossible for him not to be a fat man because of of the amount of food that seems to get eaten through the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't know if that's theology, by the way. That might be heresy. But, But what we see over and over again is the kingdom of God breaking through in around the meal table. And sometimes those are big meals. Sometimes those are little intimate meals between a few people. But three of the instances of meals being taken are actually instances of meals being taken with Pharisees. Now, those are really surprising because the Pharisees were not friends of Jesus. They were not fans of Jesus. The Pharisees were this devout, legalistic, traditional group of religious Jews who thought that they had everything pretty well sorted out. They definitely did not have a grid or a box or space for a revolutionary upstart Jewish uh, Messiah who was going to transform the world in ways that they didn't expect. 
But yet, three times we see Jesus eat with Pharisees. And today is one of those instances. He goes to have a meal with a guy called Simon. Now, it's kind of surprising. We don't know that much about Simon, but in Matthew's account, we do get a few little like, hints. The first hint we get is that Simon was not well. In fact, Simon had a medical condition called leprosy. It was an aggressive skin condition that was very contagious. It was very debilitating. And within Jewish culture, if you had leprosy, you were a leper. You were therefore cast out of the society and had to live in a special leper's colony. And so for this guy, who is a Pharisee, he's currently in the middle of society. He's the one who has all the answers. He's the one for whom everything revolves around. And yet, he's about to find himself on the outside. So we don't know why he's invited Jesus. We don't know if it's because he just wants some magic. It's like, hey, Jesus, come and heal me. I don't really care what you think, but just come and heal me. We don't know if it's because he, Jesus is known for loving those who are on the outside. But what we do know is that this meal unfolds at Simon's house. And as they're, they're there, the disciples are there, the Pharisees are there, the Jewish leaders are all there hanging around. It says that this woman comes into the back of the room. Now you picture the scene is, you know, all these banquet tables, they were kind of low, so the, probably the guests would have knelt down with their feet behind them. And in the back walks a, a woman, not invited. It says in verse 37, she was a woman who lived a sinful life. Now that's, that's kind of delicate language. But it probably wasn't a delicate situation. She was a woman who was known throughout the city. The kind of woman who, when she walked down the street, people would have crossed the other way. When they would have pointed, they would have sneered, they would have judged, they would have condemned her. Why? Well, almost certainly because she was a prostitute. She was someone who was known as being a sex worker. She was known not by her name, but by her sin. There's no way that she could have not lived without a horrible sense of condemnation and shame. But if you were that kind of lady, the last place you would choose to hang out would be a Pharisee's house. It would actually be extremely dangerous to go to a Pharisee's house because you could have been stoned on the spot, you could have been spat at, you could have been hit. You definitely were not welcome in a Pharisee's house. But somehow, like this woman has encountered Jesus. We don't know if they've met previously. We don't know if there's been a conversation. But what we, we do know is that somewhere along the way, this woman has caught sight of who Jesus is. And it started to transform her life. Everything within her just cries out like, I need to be near Jesus. And it's such a strong urge that it takes her to the Pharisee's house. Now, you could have said, I'll, I'll wait outside. She could have just said, I'll, I'll just hang around outside until Jesus comes out. But she can't. She cannot wait, so she grabs the most important thing, the most valuable thing she owns, which is some perfume, and not any perfume, like the best kind of perfume. Matthew's gospel calls it nard. It was fit for a king. Um, I did a little Googling this week, most expensive perfume in the world. I don't know if any of you have ever bought a bottle of this. It's yours, $1.29 million. Uh, so if you're thinking of a good present for your significant other's uh, party, you could, you could buy a bottle of this available to you. It probably wasn't $1.29 million. But it was significant. It was probably all that she owned. And she grabbed it. Now, just here's a quick little side point to blow your grid. This bottle of expensive perfume, where did she get it from? Probably wasn't a family heirloom if she was a prostitute on the street. 
Almost certainly, this was a bottle which she had bought with the, with the outcome of her prostitution. That's where it came from. And it's about to become the most significant object of worship in the New Testament of the Bible. So allow that to ruin you for a moment. She walks in. She sneaks in at the back of the room. It says here in verse 38, as she stood behind him at her feet, his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. She broke every single cultural rule all in one verse of the Bible. She was a woman uninvited who'd arrived at the party. She should have had her hair up, but she had her hair down. She kisses Jesus on his feet, which let's just be honest, is disgusting. Uh, she anoints him with oil. Like it's unbelievable what she's suddenly doing in the middle of this setting, in the middle of this party. But Jesus, he doesn't like rebuke her. He doesn't cast her out. In fact, his heart is moved with love and compassion toward her. But it's only Jesus whose heart is moved with compassion. Everybody else's heart is moved in the wrong way. Simon, he's on the other side of the room. And he's under his breath, he's going, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Like, if Jesus was a prophet, he wouldn't go anywhere near this woman. She is completely unclean. She's completely disgraced. She should be absolutely cast out of here. And even the disciples, who are supposed to know a little bit better, Matthew's account says in verse 8, Matthew 26, 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Like, why this waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Like, not even like, oh, she's a sinful lady, she shouldn't be in here. I think the disciples had kind of got past that point. But, but the wastefulness of perfume being poured all over feet, like, that could feed people, that could change transformation. What is this woman doing? Well, Jesus kindly, lovingly, graciously explains what's going on. And he tells them a story. And I love that, that Jesus tells stories. The parables that he tells are brilliant because they, they get past our heads. You know, if you're like me, get a bit caught in the logic, in the black and the white. And it gets round that and it gets to the heart of the matter. And in the same way, kind of music and art and drama can do those things helps this guys to relearn the box, the grid that they had put, which was completely wrong. I don't know if you've ever had to relearn something of a box that you created earlier in life that Jesus or someone else needs you to do differently. Um, when I was uh, a teenager, I didn't live on a little Victorian terrace. I lived in these 30, 40 story tower blocks in Hong Kong. Um, and in the middle was a tennis court and there was no green space and there was no grass. So the only thing you could really do was go play tennis. So my friends and I, we would, we would go and grab our tennis rackets and we'd book this little tennis court for an hour and we would go and, we'd go and hit balls backwards and forwards. Now the truth is we sucked. <laughs> like we were no good at tennis. Why? Because no one had ever taught us properly. We just watched TV and thought we could do it. This last year is the first time in my whole life I've ever had a tennis lesson. And every week for the last year, I've had a tennis coach who has been basically unlearning all the things that I ever knew that were completely wrong about tennis and actually teaching me to play. Well, that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus does over and over and over again in the Jewish context. You thought it was like that. You thought you knew how to do it, but actually it's nothing like that. It's something totally different. And so Jesus tells this story. Verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon the Pharisee replied, 
I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly. Jesus is saying, hey, Simon, you've actually got this bit right. (laughs) You probably got everything else wrong, but you've actually got this little bit right. Simon, you who are a teacher of the law, you are a Pharisee, you who are actually heading to be a leper, you've got this right, sort of. But you haven't figured out that it applies to you. Because you see, the problem was that the Pharisees already thought that God thought they were amazing. They were like the guys who were above everybody else. They walked around the city with this incredibly black and white understanding of how life was supposed to work. In fact, they even had these prayers that basically like, said, we're better than anyone else. This is a recorded prayer of a Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I mean, goodness gracious me. Like, I don't know if that's in your prayer life. Hey, I'm so glad I'm not like Kirby. Oh, I'm so, so glad I'm, I'm better than Tom. You know, I'm, I'm, that's my prayer. Like, that's literally what the Pharisees thought because they were convinced they were, they were right. They had the box. They put God inside the box. They were absolutely convinced that they were correct. But the result is that actually they cannot see Jesus. They cannot understand why Jesus has come and what he's come to do. The the result is actually that they treat Jesus really badly, really badly. You know, yes, Jesus, I need a little bit of physical healing. Yeah, that'd be great. If you could just heal me up, fantastic. But I have no interest in what you're doing. How easy is it for us to be like the Pharisees? Oh, we've got the grid. We've got it, okay. You know, I'm a good person. It's a great phrase, isn't it? I'm a good person. You know, I, I pay, pay my taxes, I volunteer, I try not to swear, I keep roughly to the speed limit except on the freeway. You know, like I, I, I go to church occasionally, I give money away. You know, whatever it is, we, we draw the box and we say, well, I'm a good person. Compared with them, I'm really good. But what we miss in this story is exactly what Jesus is trying to point out to Simon, which is that Simon has a desperate need for forgiveness. He has a desperate need for grace because the self-righteousness that Simon has is actually causing him to treat Jesus really badly. Jesus says in verse 44, do you see this woman? I came into your house, Simon. You didn't give any water for my feet. That's extremely rude. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Basically, you think you're so fantastic that you'd have no need for me, as opposed to the woman. The woman who arrives broken, who arrives with a huge known debt of shame and guilt, something she could never pay back. A forgiveness that she cannot find anywhere, even though she tries. The cleanness that she cannot get anywhere but Jesus. And what this woman is encountering and realizes the transforming, forgiving love of Jesus that comes into her desperation and sets her free. I don't know if you can imagine having your biggest debt wiped out. I don't know what your biggest debt is, your, your mortgage or your medical bills or your car payments or, I don't know, but maybe more than that, you know, brokenness, shame, regret, sins. But that is what Jesus comes to do, to wipe it all away, to transform her past and to bring her a new story. But let this blow your grid too. 
In Jesus' eyes, she is no more broken than the Pharisee. In Jesus' eyes, she is no more broken than the Pharisee. What's the biggest sin in the room? What's the biggest sin in the room? Like every single person except for Jesus thinks it's sexual sin. Isn't that interesting? Maybe we do too in our culture. That's the worst thing you can possibly do. Now, Jesus is not making light of that in the slightest. We never make light of that. But it might just be that if Jesus is calling out one thing in the room, it's not that the woman has got sexual sin in her past. It's that the thing Jesus is calling out is that the Pharisee is so proud and self-righteous that he cannot see his need for Jesus. And that is a bigger problem. That is a bigger problem because it negates the very thing that Jesus ultimately comes to do on earth, which is to pay the debt on the cross so that her sins can be forgiven. That is the biggest moment. But what about us? What about you? What about me? Do we know? Do we know that we have a need for forgiveness? I want to show you this little video. Um, it's quite a hard-hitting video, just to warn you in advance, but it's a guy called Joshua, who's now a pastor. But this is a story he grew up in uh, and lived in L.A. Uh, without having a relationship with my father, that was tough. And through that, I sought attention. And uh, I started modeling when I was 15 or 16, and all of a sudden I was getting positive reinforcement from places that I, I normally didn't, and, uh, and I, li I liked the way that felt. I, honestly, I, I was like, if, if I am successful in any type of genre of, of film or theater, I would be loved. So I took my 50 bucks and <laughs> I, I, I went to California and I spent almost every cent I had. And uh, I got a job at a, uh, like a steakhouse, so like a steakhouse slash bar in Los Angeles. So after working in that restaurant for a few months, I met a group of girls that were sitting at a table and they, uh, they were all dressed very provocatively. They said, you should, uh, you should do movies. I was like, oh yeah, actually, uh, I am trying to be an actor, this and that. And uh, they're like, no, um, adult movies. And I was like, what, what do you mean? And they're like having you know, sex on camera. It, it, my, my instinct reaction was like, wow, you know, that's, that's awesome. So they gave me their information. It was to, to meet with their agent. So I, I met with that agent. He's like, if you can do it, then you'll be very successful. You know, praise, praise, praise. You know, you, you, you'll be great. You'll be amazing. Just do it, just do it. I was like, well, you know, if I just do one, it'll be okay. I showed up and I was terrified and Everyone's like, don't worry about it. Just take this pill. You'll be able to, to perform. You'll be able to do it. And I did. And that changed the rest of my life. All I remembered about it was, was nothing that what I did, just the environment around me. I didn't have a conversation with the girl. I didn't know her name. We, we never even made eye contact. I felt dirty. I felt the camera guy directing me to do stuff while I, was, while I was doing that. It just, it didn't feel real. It didn't feel like it truly happened. And then some of my friends saw it. I was embarrassed, even though they were like, you know, dude, that's so cool. And then I thought, 
you know, if, if, if these people can see it, probably someone close to my family is gonna see it. And then, <laughs> and just thinking about embarrassing my mom was tough. But after that, even feeling that, I justified it. I've already did one, so what's the difference if I do another one? And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I've done a few and I've made, you know, three or $4,000 in less than a month. And then all of a sudden I was doing 20 a month and my family did find out. And I still didn't stop. I became this person I didn't even know. And the more I was willing to care less about myself, the more I was willing to do. And next thing I knew, I'd, I'd done a thousand movies. I'm crying myself to sleep every time I worked. I would literally shower and I, I, I couldn't get clean enough because I couldn't wash off the hurt. And that, that went on for you know, well over five years. And I was going to deposit a check and the teller looked at me and said, Joshua, is there anything else I can do for you? That was the first time I, hold, I heard my name in a long time. And I just lost it. And I went home and I looked myself in the mirror and I was like, what have I done? What have I done with my life? I haven't been home in two Christmases. I wasn't taking care of my mom. I wasn't taking care of my brother. So I, I, I called the director and told him that I'm never coming back. So that's what I did. I ran. I ran for my life. I moved to North Carolina every night. I would have, I would have dreams of the things I did. So even though I, I, I wasn't doing anything anymore, my sin was, you know, just tucked away. It wasn't dealt with. The last thing I wanted to do was face what I did. And I'd ruined my relationship with my family. My mom, anytime I reached out to her, she's like, I, I, I love you no matter what. It hurt so bad for her to say no matter what, because I knew I embarrassed her. When I met Hope, I was like, like even though she likes me, like she doesn't, she doesn't know what I've done. And there's no way that she could accept me for who I am. She asked me if I believe in God, and I said yes. And after she asked me that, I felt like I had to tell her something. I did pornography for, you know, over five years. And she looked me in the face and said, that's not who you are. God forgave you for that. Why can't I? I was like, wow. That's, that's what speaking Christian's like. How was some of that, you know? So not, not long after that, together, we went to Hope. And when I walked in Hope, we were, we were, sit, we were sitting there and Mike's talking straight to me. And he's like, no, no matter how broken you are, it's never too late. And I believe that. My whole life changed. Here I am, so undeserving, that he stooped down, he picked me up, and he brushed me off. And I was clean. It was like it was never happened in his eyes. And I can't explain the burden that took away. After that sermon with Mike, I decided I need to do something. So it says that I need to be baptized. You know, if, if, if Jesus said to do something, it's probably a good idea. So I got baptized. And just you know, to be able to declare that, that Jesus was my Lord and Savior, it was, it was great. 
It's an amazing story. It's a hard, hard-hitting one, I realize. But when he encountered Jesus, just like the woman, his life was transformed. And he realized that not uh, all those things that he'd done, the person that he was, wasn't the end of his story. That Jesus had more for him. No, but what about us? I, I imagine not many of us have a story exactly like Joshua Brooms. He now travels the world as a pastor telling people that they can find hope and forgiveness and lives are transformed through it. But what about your story and mine? Sometimes we think we can hide our stories, whether they're dramatic and spectacular or whether they're just hidden in secret. We think, well, nobody knows. God doesn't know. God doesn't care. It doesn't really matter. And if God did knew, he definitely wouldn't love me. But yet what the woman discovers, what, G- what Joshua discovers is that actually God already knows. God knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. And actually he chooses not to reject us, chooses not to condemn us, chooses to not heap shame on us. In fact, what he does is he pours out the offer of grace and forgiveness, and love. If you think there is too much sin in your past for Jesus to ever love you, let me tell you that isn't true. In fact, it says in Romans 5, the law was brought in so that trespass, sin, might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so grace may reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a little bit technical, but what it basically means is that actually the law morality showed you that you couldn't do it. That whether you were Simon, whether you were that guy, whether you were the woman, like whoever you were, that was not going to be enough to meet God's perfect standards. But however broken we are, however much damage, however much sin, God's grace expands. God's mercy expands so that we might have the righteousness. How? Through Jesus through Jesus. That's why Jesus goes on and says, therefore I tell you, her many sins, many sins have been forgiven. The truth is both of them had too much sin to pay for. Simon, too much sin. The woman, too much sin. Joshua Broom, too much sin. Me, too much sin. You, too much sin. All of us, too much sin. But yet, Jesus can take it all away. Jesus can take your sin. He can take my sin. He can take my brokenness. He can take your brokenness. And even better than that, he can write a new story with a new life. But what I love, what I love about this story is what happens next, is that it's out of forgiveness. It's out of brokenness. It's out of repentance that actually worship starts to flow. It's actually out of those places that worship flows. Just look what the woman does. She, she doesn't sing, but she cries. She pours out this most valuable possession. She kisses his feet, which is disgusting. And I said that, and I will keep saying that because it's disgusting. But she just keeps going because she cannot hold herself in anymore because she has glimpsed the reality of forgiveness in her life. In fact, Jesus says of her in the Matthew's Gospel account, she says, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus could have used any example in the New Testament, walking on water, five loaves and two fishes, but yet Jesus chooses this moment, this woman, to say this is the single most profound description of worship in the whole of the New Testament, the Bible. The whole of the Bible, Jesus calls this woman out because out of her brokenness, 
out of her sin, she finds a new beginning. It's messy, it's snotty, it's gross, it's beautiful, it's emotional, it's risky, it's out there, but it is worship because it is a glimpse of what, who God is and what he has done. You know, I, I don't know what your experience of worship is, and I don't just mean like singing songs or praying, but I mean really just having that sense of wanting to give your heart and life to Jesus. I think sometimes we can feel a little cold, can't we? Oh, yeah, I don't really like those songs, or I'm too busy to do that, or, you know, I'll just miss that bit out and get to the truth bit. But actually, when we glimpse the truth of who Jesus is, when we glimpse what it is that we are forgiven from, when we glimpse what we are forgiven into, and what we, when we glimpse what we are called to be, actually, there's nothing we can do but worship. There's nothing we can do but worship. If you find yourself standing there and you're like, oh, I don't really care about this, then may I just suggest possibly it's because you've forgotten what it is that Jesus did for your life. Because if we glimpse it, actually, I think we do have to kind of get a little bit serious about worship and get on our knees or on our faces or our hands in the air or cry occasionally or what all those things are because how could we not if we really knew what Jesus had done for us? So let me ask you, what is it that Jesus saved you from? Now, some of us have grown up in church like I did. You know, it's hard to think about the life before because it was so long ago, but we can probably still get a bit of an idea. Where would you be without Jesus? What is it that he saved you into? What is it he's saving you toward in eternal life? This woman understands who Jesus is and she understands what Jesus has done. That's why ultimately Jesus says, go in peace. The end result of all of this is a cosmic, eternal, emotional, spiritual, physical peace that comes to this woman. Because when we find Jesus, that's the end result. And so I'd love to pray for some of us. And I don't know where you find yourself in this morning's story. Maybe, maybe like the woman or like Joshua Broom, you, you arrive just with this horrendous sense of guilt and failure. And if that's you, I'd love in a moment just to pray for you because that is not God's destiny for your life. In fact, he died to wipe that away from your life. And so I'm going to pray for you. But I also want to give space to pray for those of us who've felt our lives, our hearts have gone a little bit cold. Our fire's gone a little bit cold and we've forgotten and we're just going through the motions. So why don't we just pray where we are and just find a comfortable place. If you want to kneel, kneel. If you want to sit, sit. If you want to stand, stand. Whatever's good for you. But let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and meet us where we are. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, firstly, would, would you meet, meet those of us this morning who carry that deep sense of shame and guilt and failure? For those of us who've chose to believe the lie that we are too far gone, that we are too broken, 
that we're never going to change. Come, Holy Spirit. And right now, Jesus, please, would you wash our sin away, our shame away, our guilt away, that we would be white as snow. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. But for the rest of us, Lord, where we also feel sometimes like we we are good enough, we're fine. We're actually totally comfortable with who we think we are and who you think we are. And our hearts have gone a little bit cold because we've forgotten. We've forgotten what Jesus did for us. Holy Spirit, this morning, would you stir our hearts anew Would you wake us up? Would you open our eyes to see the cross of Jesus Christ? The ultimate sacrifice given for us to pay for all of the sins and the brokenness of our lives and to write us a new story. Where we've gone cold, would you just light a fire so deep within us again to worship? To worship you, the one who gave it all. Thank you, Jesus.